0: Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.
1: Welcome to Prognosis. I'm Laura Carlson. It's day 166 since coronavirus was declared a global pandemic. Today's main story is Using the blood plasma of recovered COVID patients to treat very sick ones is a promising experimental tool in the fight against the disease. But what should we make of today's decision by the White House to expand access to the treatment even before researchers fully understand it? But first, here's what happened in virus news today. After suffering one of Europe's earliest and fiercest outbreaks, Italy emerged as an unlikely role model for its handling of the pandemic. The country managed to reduce infections and fatalities dramatically in June and July, after two months of strict lockdown. But as cases flare in Europe, Italy's success may now be in jeopardy. On Saturday... Italy recorded the most new cases since mid-May. The intensity and duration of Italy's lockdown is widely seen as one of the reasons why cases continue to fall after curbs started to be gradually lifted in early May. Restrictions were maintained for a full six weeks after new infections peaked, and schools never reopened, unlike in France or Germany. Hong Kong has confirmed the first known case of a coronavirus reinfection. A man was infected with the virus this month after recovering from an initial bout in April. Scientists say they found the second infection in the 33-year-old, who had no symptoms, when he was screened at an airport after returning from Europe. Researchers at the University of Hong Kong say they know it is a reinfection because they used genomic sequence analysis to prove that he had been reinfected by two different strains. The findings suggest there may not be long-lasting immunity from the virus in those who recover. The South Korean government is deciding whether to raise social distancing restrictions to the highest level. As officials warn, the country is at the risk of a, quote, massive nationwide outbreak. An additional 397 new virus cases were reported on Sunday, the highest number since March 7th. Jung Eun-kyung, head of Korea's Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, said at a briefing on Sunday that cases are rising in 17 cities and provinces across the nation.
0: OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.
1: And now for today's main story. President Donald Trump expanded access to a coronavirus treatment that involves blood plasma donated by people who've recovered from COVID-19. But while convalescent plasma, as it's known, is a promising therapy, researchers don't yet fully understand how well it works. I spoke with Bloomberg's Michelle Fay Cortez about what the announcement means and the concerns that agencies, like the FDA, are letting pressures from the White House rather than science guide their decisions.
2: What is the promise of plasma as a treatment for COVID-19? Convalescent plasma is basically bringing in reinforcements to help someone who's newly infected with coronavirus fight it off. When you think about an infection, there is a pathogen that your body encounters, and your immune system fights it off using antibodies. These antibodies remain in your blood and in your system for some extended period, perhaps lifelong after you successfully fight off that infection so think of these antibodies as your soldiers in your fight against the virus what convalescent plasma does is it takes your blood your antibodies your fighters and gives them to another person who's been newly infected and it takes up the battle for them so obviously there's all kinds of questions around it what antibodies specifically do you need because the body makes a wide variety At what point should you get the antibodies? If you've had the infection for a while, you've made your own antibodies, so maybe someone else's don't help. But perhaps early on in the infection, they do.
1: Has convalescent plasma been used before with other diseases?
2: Convalescent plasma has been used for over 100 years. And in fact, it won the first Nobel Prize for treatment of diphtheria. So it is a known quantity. That being said... Because of the way viruses infections move, we don't yet have definitive proof that it works. There haven't been any clinical trials that have been completed that show that convalescent plasma actually does help you recover more quickly or lower mortality from any type of infection. Again, there's great hope that this does work. And we know that millions of people get blood transfusions all the time. So it's considered very, very safe. Because it's safe, it doesn't have to be all that beneficial in order to make a a difference in patients' lives. Usually when we're thinking about drugs, we have safety versus efficacy. In this case, we know there's not a safety risk. So even if it helps a little bit, if you're not hurting anybody, why not go forward? The bottom line is, though, we really want evidence. We really want proof that this product is going to benefit people. And what evidence is there that the use of convalescent plasma works with regard to COVID-19? The Mayo Clinic had a program that showed that people who received a high dose of convalescent plasma were 35% less likely to die than those who received a lower dose of that plasma. But everyone in the trial received plasma. The way that it was talked about by the Trump administration and FDA Commissioner Hahn was that convalescent plasma itself reduced mortality by 35%. But because everybody did get the convalescent plasma, it wasn't the plasma itself that was making the difference. Likely it was the high-dose antibodies versus the low-dose antibodies. But again, there wasn't a clinical trial. So there are other things that could have been playing a role, other variables like how sick the patients were, how old the patients were, whether they got it early in their infection or late in their infection. So without those kind of controls, we really don't know how effective it was at all. And when you look at a 35% reduction in mortality, that's a relative risk reduction. When you look at the actual numbers from the program that was done by the Mayo Clinic, we saw that people who had a high dose of antibodies were 8.9% likely to die. People who had a lower dose were 13.7% more likely to die. Now, while that is a 35% decrease in deaths, it doesn't mean that half of all the people didn't die. And it's those kind of nuances around statistical analysis and math that most people don't follow anyway. And so some of the details might get lost in translation.
1: We've recently seen an emergency use authorization issued with regard to convalescent plasma.
2: Now, how does this
1: exactly speed up the process of... Medical facilities and physicians acquiring and issuing this as a treatment for COVID 19.
2: An expanded use authorization is essentially like an approval in that it allows hospitals and doctors to prescribe the therapy and to use it unilaterally. They don't have to enroll their patients in a clinical trial, they don't have to track their outcomes. They don't have to report any kind of an improvement or deceleration in their response to the therapy. They will have to tell the FDA if there's been any terrible side effects with it, but that's a generally pretty high bar. That's when you've had a serious adverse event. But these patients who are going to be getting plasma under the emergency use authorization will get it just like people get any approved medicine. So how they ultimately do isn't going to be tracked by anyone. So we won't really know if they are better off than if they had just gotten standard of care.
1: And will the emergency use authorization affect at all the acquisition or, say, the
2: distribution of this convalescent plasma? It can be really tricky to get convalescent plasma. This isn't a product that's being made in a laboratory. You literally have to take it out of people's bodies. And there are a number of companies out there who do that. You've probably seen them on the side of the road in small little buildings, BioLife, other places like that. Also the American Red Cross and hospitals have set up their own plasma donation centers. So getting access to the plasma requires people to be willing to donate after they've already gone through an infection. So you have to know you've been infected, you have to be willing to donate, and you have to have a place to go to do the donation But there's already a lot of demand for blood products in general, and donations have gone down, so the entire industry is actually already under pressure. Exactly how this emergency use authorization is going to impact the industry isn't entirely clear. The hope is that it will make it easier for these organizations to gather the plasma and to distribute it widely across the country where it's needed. Is
1: it likely that we are going to see more uses of the emergency use authorization in the future for potentially, say, the development of a COVID-19
2: vaccine? Emergency use authorizations get products to patients markedly faster than any other kind of approach used by regulators. It's a critical tool during the pandemic because we don't really have time in a lot of cases to make sure we're dotting every I and crossing every T. So the standard is lower. It's just they want to make sure that it's safe and that it has some suggestion that there might be a benefit. But there is a broader issue here that is concerning a lot of people in the industry and in science and medicine in general. So the concern is is that politics is entering into play here. Certainly, everyone is Anxious beyond measure to get new treatments and vaccines and testing tools out to the people, to the doctors, so that we can get coronavirus under control. There are a lot of uncertainties ahead. And when we talk about something like a vaccine, which will be given to people who are entirely healthy in hopes of averting an infection that they might not ever have anyway, the idea of giving something that is not truly vetted, and truly safe is worrisome to a lot of people. And so the idea that maybe we're losing some of our confidence and some of our belief in our public health officials because they are racing to get new products to people quicker so that perhaps they might be cutting some corners raises critical problems.
1: Obviously, with the election coming up over the next couple of months, there has been perhaps an even increased pressure for the Trump administration to have a vaccine ready by that time. Is there an option or have we seen any likelihood that there may be a similar emergency use authorization or
2: emergency order for a fast-tracked vaccine before November? There's almost no question that the first vaccines that become available for coronavirus will be made available through an emergency use authorization. Everyone expects that. Whether it's possible for that to happen before the election is still an open question. Almost all of the data we have so far suggests that the clinical trials will not be completed. Going back to the criteria of what regulators are going to act on when it comes to something like that, they don't have to have fully definitive proof. But they do need to have some guarantee that at least it's safe and that it shows signs of promise. It is possible that there could be action before the election. But whether or not people are going to trust those findings and ultimately embrace the vaccine isn't known. And that's critically important for controlling coronavirus. If a vaccine works or it doesn't work, if people don't get it, it doesn't even matter. That's was Michelle
1: Faye Cortez, and that's it for our show today. For coverage of the outbreak from 120 bureaus around the world, visit bloomberg.com/coronavirus. And if you like the show, please leave us a review and a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It's the best way to help more listeners find our global reporting. The Prognosis Daily Edition is produced by Topher Forges, Jordan Gaspure. Magnus Henriksen, and me, Laura Carlson. Today's main story was reported by Michelle Faye Cortez. Original music by Leo Sidrin. Our editors are Rick Schein and Francesca Levy. Francesca Levy is Bloomberg's head of podcasts. Thanks for listening.